This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Have you ever covered a carpet stain with a rug? Ignored a leaky faucet? Pretended your half-painted living room is supposed to look like that? Well, you're not alone. We've all got unfinished home projects. But there's an easier way. When you download Thumbtack, it's easier to care for your home from top to bottom. Pull out your phone, and in just a few steps, you can search, chat, and book highly rated pros right in your neighborhood. Plus, you'll know what to tackle next, because Thumbtack is the app that shows you what to do, who to hire, and when. So say goodbye to all those unfinished home projects, and say hello to caring for your home the easier way. Download Thumbtack and start a project today. This is the Intelligence Matters Podcast, with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Sponsored by Raytheon. The Fourth Amendment to the Constitution talks about the right of the people uh, to be safe from unreasonable searches and seizures. And over the years, the Supreme Court has interpreted that to apply to a certain level of protection, to apply to people in the United States, both citizens as well as resident aliens. The government cannot do surveillance on them unless it meets certain rules. But that largely ends at our nation's borders. Generally speaking, if the United States government, for national security reasons, feels it needs to target a terrorist, let us say, overseas, uh, by and large, it's free to do so. There needs to be a judicial determination, the equivalent of essentially of a search warrant, before the, uh, the United States government can target an American. That's not the case for a foreigner. So I think there's a general perception in the population that you guys are just out there doing what you want to do, right? And the reality is that there's an incredible amount of rigor around protecting... Nothing could be further from the truth. And living up to the Fourth Amendment, right? There probably was a little more of that myth floating around in the immediate aftermath of the disclosures, uh, the unauthorized disclosures by uh, Snowden. So that sort of fed into it. I might add that in all those disclosures, nothing was shown to be illegal. Since then, the intelligence community and NSA in particular have been trying to be more transparent, trying to tell a little more about our operations so that people feel comfortable in knowing what we're doing. If you think five and ten years out, we're going to be in a world in which your precise location is going to be known everywhere to everybody, both the private sector and the government. I think our society hasn't even now, let alone in the future, figured out what privacy really means. We just haven't come to terms yet with how we want to regulate cybersecurity, what the international norms are, what the domestic norms are, how we want the private sector to behave in this area versus the government. Uh, So lots and lots of questions that our society is going to have to sort out. Glenn Gerstel is the general counsel, the top lawyer of the National Security Agency. Prior to that, Glenn was in private legal practice for 40 years, during which time he also served on the Washington, D.C. Homeland Security Commission and the National Infrastructure Advisory Council. I just had a chance to sit down with Glenn to discuss both what attorneys do in the intelligence community 
as well as some of the key legal issues of the day. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our exclusive sponsor, Raytheon. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. From end-to-end cybersecurity to high-energy lasers to quantum computers, Raytheon is there. Advancing technologies that protect people, information, and infrastructure. Raytheon, making the world a safer place. Glenn, welcome. Um, It is great to have you on the show, and it's great to see you. Uh, Thanks so much, Michael. I'm uh, really delighted to be here, and I'm also so uh, happy that your ratings are so robust that you're, they're going to be able to withstand my appearance. They'll, 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 they'll probably bounce back after a month or two. I'm absolutely certain that there's a lot of people out there, particularly my young listeners, who are going to pay a lot of attention to this. Glenn, let's start with how does a lawyer who spent 40 years in private practice end up as the top lawyer at the National Security Agency? Well, I'm uh, half tempted to say through a series of clerical errors, but uh, but actually uh, there was a little bit of method to the madness. I, I had the good fortune to work for a Wall Street law firm for, for 40 years. And as I was approaching the uh, our, our mandatory retirement age, I decided that I wanted to uh, do something different and be involved in public service. I'd actually uh, been a volunteer uh, on some boards and commissions. I was on the president's uh, National Infrastructure Advisory Council. I was on the District of Columbia Homeland Security Commission. And so I'd, I'd had some exposure to the um, Homeland Security sector uh, just as a private citizen in a volunteer capacity. And actually some of my thinking in that regard was product of, of 9-11 because on 9-11 I was in Los Angeles having just arrived there the night before, having originally been scheduled and having been booked on American Airlines Flight 77. At the last minute, I canceled that, fortunately, and uh, for uh, just unrelated reasons. And so it, it really obviously, like for me and millions of Americans, sure. had a very searing impact. Uh, but that was always in the back of my mind that I wanted to do something in the public service sector. So I started at the end of my legal career to look around in the federal government to try to see if I could find some way to be useful and knocked on the doors of lots of federal agencies and um, announced my availability and discovered no one was really particularly interested uh, for two, two reasons I hadn't fully appreciated. One, in the second year of, of an administration, uh, or second term of administration, especially in the second half of the second term, uh, there's always a deputy moving up to the major position. And so if I wanted to be the, uh, I don't know, deputy assistant secretary of paperclip somewhere, then there probably was an assistant deputy secretary who was interested in moving up to that job. And the second, um, which I hadn't really fully appreciated and sounds a little silly, but you really do have to be qualified for these jobs. And, of course, that, that sounds silly when you say it that way, but, uh, but my experience had really had been as a lawyer. So even though I was looking for non-legal jobs, I um, found that I was really going to have to try to find something in the legal sector. One day, a friend who was then the general counsel of the Department of Defense called up and said, the NSA legal department position was coming up and I should apply for it. I thought that was... A serious mistake on his part to even suggest it, but uh, I did apply and went through a series of interviews and um, and wound up in the position, which has been a, just an extraordinary privilege. So how how is life different between somebody who is at the very senior levels of a private law firm and now somebody who is at the very senior levels of the U.S. government? How is life different? Well, in some ways they're similar, and in some ways they're different. And the they're the different, and and the difference uh, certainly struck me the very first morning I showed up for work. Uh, as I walked into the uh, new office and signed some papers, the first thing I did was get sworn in. And, you know, I hadn't taken an oath before. I represented clients around the world doing big transactions for 40 years. 
And I never took an oath for those clients. Uh, but the uh, significance of what I was about to enter on uh, struck me that first morning when I took a, an oath of office. And um, uh, you certainly get a sense of the extraordinary sense of mission and the sense of the people that, are, that surround you in, in senior levels of government and particularly in the intelligence community, which is frankly just missing in the private sector. That isn't to say you can't find a rewarding, uh, important uh, role for yourself in the private sector, but but certainly it's very different, uh, very different in government, partly because of this sense of mission. At the senior levels, you're dealing with the same kinds of issues in the sense of ones that require judgment and wisdom and some perspicacity. So that's true whether you're a senior lawyer advising clients in the private sector or public sector, uh, but obviously there are significant differences. Glenn, what does it mean to be the general counsel of NSA? What are your fundamental responsibilities? There are several responsibilities. The easiest one and the most obvious one is to be the head of the legal department. So it looks like the general counsel's office of almost any big corporation. Uh, NSA, uh, if it were a private corporation, would probably rank in the upper reaches of the Fortune 500. It's a worldwide organization with some, I don't know, 40,000-odd employees and a billions-of-dollar budget. So its general counsel's office looks a lot like that of a big corporation. We have a litigation department, a patents department, so on and so forth. Uh, and running that job is similar to what, what a senior lawyer at any big corporate enterprise would do. The second uh, is to be the chief legal advisor and counselor to the senior agency leadership, and most particularly the director, which happens to be General Nakasone at the moment. You first so, worked for uh, Mike Rogers. First had the privilege Admiral of working Rogers. for Admiral Mike Rogers and uh, now for General Nakasone, uh, both uh, talented directors of, uh, of the agency, and serving as their sort of principal legal advisor. And that really bleeds over into a lot of policy issues as well, because at, that, that, at those levels, uh, if the problem is hitting your desk or the director's desk at that point, it's probably not because there's a clear legal answer. It's because there isn't a clear legal answer, and you're probably in the realm of policy, and you need to figure out uh, something using your your judgment and your approach to problems generally. Um, and then maybe the third area is as an external ambassador on some level, which is both dealing with the other agencies in the intelligence community, coordinating uh, issues with uh, the director, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, uh, the agency that you came from, the CIA, the FBI, et cetera, as well as dealing with Congress and our many overseers. So there's a, a little bit of an external ambassador role to that too. In the first role, I'm sure you hire lawyers. And in terms of the entry-level positions, what do you look for in a new lawyer? We are unbelievably lucky in that we are able to attract literally the cream of the crop of uh, law students. Uh, we, we also hire laterally for, for people who are lawyers who are already uh, well-advanced in their career. But uh, we're particularly focused, I'm particularly focused, on trying to get lawyers from uh, some of our nation's top law schools to come and join us. And, and we have an honors program that people can apply for. It's all the information is available on our website about it. Uh, and we're looking for lawyers who are coming right out of law school or perhaps a judicial clerkship who have an interest in national security. They don't necessarily have to be experts in national security. They don't necessarily have to have taken a course in national security, but they have to have a genuine interest in the mission. And we're looking for people who, of course, meet the, the legal standards we want, which is namely very talented legal skills and good grades in law school. Of course, that goes without saying that's no different from anybody else. But we're particularly interested in people who are interested in A, the mission, and B, most importantly, have the judgment and wisdom to be addressing some of the very, very important issues that come across a lawyer's uh, desk in the National Security Agency. 
Glenn, I want to switch gears a little bit and spend a few minutes on how NSA adheres to the rule of law, hopefully straighten out some misconceptions and get into some of the issues that we've heard about in the news for the last the last year or so. And maybe the place to start is tell us the difference between the rules for targeting foreign nationals. This is for intelligence collection, targeting foreign nationals overseas and targeting them here when they're here in the United States. So you've underscored the the main point of divide, uh, which all grows out of our legal system, and in particular, the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution. The Fourth Amendment to the Constitution uh, talks about the right of the people uh, to be safe from unreasonable searches and seizures. And over the years, the Supreme Court has interpreted that to apply to a certain level of protection to apply to people in the United States, both citizens as well as resident aliens and some other aspects of of, uh, entities, U.S. corporations, for example. Uh, So they are entitled to a certain level of protection uh, and government cannot do surveillance on them unless it meets certain rules, which I'll describe in a second. But that largely ends at our nation's borders. And overseas, the Fourth Amendment doesn't apply. Uh, foreigners are not entitled to the protection of our U.S. Constitution in, in not only in the Fourth Amendment, but in other areas as well. So overseas, we are not constrained. Uh, there may be local laws that are involved, but that's a separate issue. But generally speaking, if the United States government, for national security reasons, feels it needs to target a terrorist, let us say, overseas, uh, by and large, it's free to do so. Uh, it gets a little more complicated, and we can talk about that, when that terrorist overseas happens to be using U.S. communications infrastructure, and that sort of may implicate the Fourth Amendment a little more, so we need to have a separate set of rules. But if it's clearly all overseas, no restrictions on the Fourth Amendment. If it's in the United States, the United States government, the intelligence community wants to target an American living in the United States or an American living overseas, then special rules apply, and as a broad matter, just as a general matter, uh, no such targeting can occur absent a specific judicial finding at the probable cause standard uh, that either a crime is being committed in the case of the United States or that the person is an agent of a foreign power. Um, I'm glossing over a lot of details here, but but basically there needs to be a judicial determination, the equivalent of essentially of a search warrant, before uh, the United States government can target an American. That's not the case for a foreigner. And that's that probable cause um, requirement is if the Americans here or if the Americans overseas anywhere Americans enjoy the protection of the Fourth Amendment anywhere they are around the world outside the United States. And what's the definition of an American in this context? The definition uh, isn't isn't precise. The Fourth Amendment merely talks about the right of the people. And because the term is used in that amendment as opposed to some other sections of the Constitution where it talks about citizens and so on and so forth, the Supreme Court over the years has interpreted the people to be very broad. It's it's not only U.S. citizens, uh, but it's also green card holders, permanent residents. It applies to American corporations. It even applies to U.S. registered ships and airplanes, for example. So uh, the intelligence community takes a very broad definition of U.S. persons in order to be safe perhaps a little more than the Constitution requires. We're being a little conservative, a little prudent in that regard. But the rules and regulations are written so as to protect the widest possible range of U.S. persons. And all that's captured in that phrase, U.S. persons. That's correct. And how did all of this evolve over time? I mean, did this come out of legislation? Where did, this, where did, where did these rules come from? 
Where did the interpretation of the Fourth Amendment that imposes these rules on you come from? Uh, all of it stems from court cases, basically, uh, and essentially the pronouncements of our highest court, the Supreme Court. The definition of, as relevant to surveillance, for example, is really a, a relatively recent phenomenon. You know, the Fourth Amendment, which was adopted a few years after the Constitution itself was adopted, uh, didn't mention anything about privacy. It didn't have any particular references, of course, to electronic surveillance. No such thing even existed. The first court case, interestingly enough, that really dealt with this issue was back in 1928 when telephones were sort of still new. And the, uh, it involved a, a bootlegger. The federal agents put old-fashioned alligator clips on a person's uh, telephone and uh, did not get a search warrant for it. The case went to the Supreme Court because the bootlegger said the evidence associated with the, the wiretapping uh, should be thrown out and shouldn't be considered. And the Supreme Court, Justice Taft at the time, said... Uh, no, um, there's no search going on. There's no seizure, no Fourth Amendment implication. Putting wiretaps on a phone doesn't implicate the Fourth Amendment. Fascinatingly, you would have had to wait to 1967 in a famous case called Katz, in which the Supreme Court for the first time enunciated a, ro- uh, a right of privacy, and they overturned that 1928 case called Olmstead, which, by the way, had a fascinating dissent by Louis Brandeis, Um, and said there is a right of privacy, and the Fourth Amendment does protect people and not places. And as a result, uh, since that case, uh, what, half a century ago, we've now had a steady evolution of uh, of judicial determinations in that area, which are sometimes a little hard to determine, but uh, in terms of their their forecastability. So, Glenn, when you target, say, a terrorist, or you're doing targeting more broadly— you can inadvertently collect information on an American, on a U.S. person. What happens in that case? Well, we do have situations in which there's what's called incidental collection of communications with an American. And the law is very clear growing out of the, in the domestic context, where, let us say, for example, the FBI would obtain a search warrant and, and, or, uh, or some other appropriate court order and undertake surveillance on someone for law enforcement purposes, the fact that law enforcement might, for example, be targeting me because I'm suspected of a crime and the FBI listens to my phone calls, by definition, means they're also going to be listening to whoever else I'm calling. So if I happen to be talking to my uh, son or my wife, they're going to hear that too. They're not interested in my son or my wife. That's incidental collection. And the, and the, the courts have been very clear that the mere fact the inevitable fact that incidental collection occurs doesn't defeat the original validity of the search warrant. And that principle has been applied to uh, surveillance for national security purposes. So, uh, to use your example, when, where we have situations where um, we are, let us say, targeting a terrorist overseas and we find that he or she is communicating, let us say, with an American, either because it's an email or a telephone call or whatever, um, that's incidental collection. We make attempts to make sure we do not, uh, we're not going to report on it because it's not valid foreign intelligence. We're not interested in it. We delete anything that relates to Americans to the extent we can as a general rule. Um, And where we are doing reporting on what the terrorists said, for example, we'll issue a report saying terrorist A was in contact with someone in the United States about a possible plot or trying to recruit that person or whatever. Uh, When we send out our reports, we actually mask the name of the American. We do not state ter- the terrorist was talking to in a conversation with in a conversation with, with Glenn Gerstel. We'll just say with U.S. person number one, and that's how the report goes out. Um, if it turns out when the FBI gets that report, for example, 
and says, gee, we'd like to know. We have a valid law enforcement reason for knowing who a U.S. person is because we want to know who's being recruited, then there's a procedure for us to go back uh, to the FBI and unmask or reveal the name and say, well, he was actually talking to Glenn Gerstel. And then the FBI, pursuant to what their own legal authorities might obtain whatever legal process they need to go pursue that. But that's separate, not part of the intelligence community's operations. And who can ask for an unmasking? So there are detailed procedures on the unmaskings, uh, which are throughout the intelligence community. NSA has its own particular set of procedures. And the, the basic rule is that any, any legitimate recipient of the intelligence report, and, and again, the, re- the reports are targeted. They're not just distributed generally to everybody in the federal government. They're on a need-to-know basis, so different reports go to different people. But if you are a recipient of a report, you can go back to the NSA or the other agencies, CIA or whoever, and say, I have a legitimate need and explain the reason you need to see it. You just can't say, I'd like to see the, the name here. This sounds interesting. Let me tell me more. You need to articulate why it is and assuming your position is such that it's appropriate and you enunciate a valid reason, then we will release the name. So, Glenn, you operate under very strict legal guidelines that have evolved over time that are very clear. How do you ensure in an agency as large as yours that the individuals who are doing the work every day are actually living up to those guidelines? What kind of controls do you have in place? What kind of auditing do you have in place? How do you guys do that? You are right in the uh, implicit premise of your question, which is that there, there is a daunting challenge there. Uh, but it's one that we absolutely rise to and relish embracing. Uh, the agency has a wide range of activities, whether it's in the surveillance area or the cybersecurity area. And all of those have the potential for implicating the rights of of Americans and privacy, and we want to make sure that we scrupulously adhere uh, to those rules. So it's a multi-layered approach. First, it starts with the people. Uh, All the people are very mission-oriented. They're fully aware of the rules that are applied to them. There are training uh, mandatory videos and mandatory classes that everyone at NSA may, must take. Everybody, every single employee takes varying, varying levels of courses. So there's an extensive amount of training, number one. Number two, there's a large compliance department that uh, takes a look at the surveillance activities uh, that we do and, and, and reports back on any failures. The place is so technically complicated and there's so much technology going on that it's almost inevitable uh, given the scope of what we do, that there'll be some, you know, small, I'll make up a number, you know, 0.001% error rate where, oh, just for example, if you were conducting some kind of uh, surveillance on uh, a person who was traveling uh, abroad and they happened to come into the United States and we fail to turn off, for example, the surveillance the minute they come into the United States but catch it a day later just because the computer didn't turn off something, well, that's technically not that's a, that's a compliance violation. We need to catch it. We need to deal with it and address it, which we do scrupulously. But there are, there's technical reasons. We don't really find situations where people uh, deliberately are trying to violate the rules. That's just not the culture. That just really doesn't happen. But, but there are inadvertent lapses in part because of the technology and in part because in some places the rules aren't that clear. So there's a multi-layered approach, which, as I said, is, involves the people, involves training, a compliance department, my own department, and then finally and most importantly, a wide and deeply redundant and deliberately deeply redundant layers of oversight from people from the Department of Justice National Security Division who come in every month and they check individually 
uh, one by one the list of people whom we have targeted for surveillance under certain programs. The Office of the Director of National Intelligence does that too. They have a completely overlapping function. There's the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board that also looks over our shoulder. Uh, the President's uh, Intelligence Advisory Board, two committees of Congress. So there's lots and lots of layers of oversight, which consumes a lot of my time in addressing. I'm not in any way complaining about that. There's a good reason we have redundant oversight, and it's just designed to make sure the very point you said, which is that we want to scrupulously adhere to the rule of law. So I think there's a general perception in the population that you guys are just out there doing what you want to do, right? And the reality is that there's an incredible amount of rigor around protecting... Nothing could be further from the truth. And living up to the Fourth Amendment, right? Absolutely. Do Do you run into that myth when you're out talking to people or not? I think there probably was a little more of that myth floating around in the immediate aftermath of the disclosures, uh, the unauthorized disclosures by uh, Snowden. So that sort of fed into it. I might add that in all those disclosures, nothing was shown to be illegal. Nothing was shown to be illegal. Now, there may be some things that people weren't aware of and were surprised about. I'll certainly grant that. And there's no doubt that it definitely ignited a public debate. But there was nothing illegal. And since then, we have made a real genuine effort to do two things. One, to make it clear that what we're doing is is uh, is fully in compliance with law, and it is. And second, uh, the intelligence community and NSA in particular have been trying to be more transparent, trying to tell a little more about our operations so that people feel comfortable in knowing what we're doing. Obviously, there's limits to how far we can go in this area. I'd, I'd, there are a bunch of times I'd love to be able to explain something to the public, but we can't because it's classified, and that doesn't end the debate. It's not classified. It's classified for a good reason. We don't want to tip off our adversaries to what we're doing or exactly how we're doing it. So unfortunately, some of the some of the pieces of information that we'd like to be able to share with the public uh, must, must inevitably remain secret. Um, and I think ultimately the American people have to feel comfortable that with all these layers of oversight and congressional committees and so on and so forth, they're the ones who are able to, in connection with our transparency efforts, they're the ones who are able to uh, provide the assurance that what we're doing is scrupulously within the law. I want to come back to the transparency point and the public point. So as you know, I was on President Obama's Commission on Telecommunications and Intelligence. And I thought, in the aftermath of Snowden, that one of the most important moments, one of the most important turning moments, was when uh, Keith Alexander and his deputy agreed to a 60 Minutes interview. I thought they knocked it out of the park, and I thought they dampened. By doing that, they dampened a lot of the concerns about what NSA was doing. So I think that transparency piece is really important. And at CIA, I always thought that we brought the fence line in too close where we could have pushed it out more and given people a greater sense of what it is we were doing and the appropriateness of it. Yeah, there's a... it, it, it's clearly something we need to do, and it's also something that um, we struggle with. We struggle with for two reasons. One, culturally, as you said, like you, you're referring to your agency, the CIA, but, but even at NSA. You know, NSA, the old joke was that NSA stood for no such agency. Right. And, and there uh, was a time where and, the, and, the existence and, was classified. Exactly. So when President uh, Truman created it back in 1952, um, I remember it well. I was one year old. Uh, the agency's very existence, in fact, the very letter that the president signed creating it was itself a state secret and not acknowledged till many years later. So the culture is definitely one of secrecy. And again, for good reasons, we don't want to tip off our adversaries. 
Um, but at the same time, uh, we recognize that uh, in this day and age with, with so much information available to our citizens, which is a good thing, uh, we can't hide behind the role of secrecy completely. And, uh, and transparency at some level is appropriate, and we do that in the form of issuing annual reports on surveillance by having the directors of the agencies testify in public before Congress, something that is, you know, didn't always happen in the early days of the agency. And then finally, um, this podcast itself is an example of the agency's outreach. I mean, I, as the general counsel, I've gone around uh, the country uh, trying to um, explain a little bit about how the agency does indeed adhere to the rule of law, the kinds of privacy issues we wrestle with, and how we view the future. And you've actually been quite active in, in, in giving speeches and talking to groups. That's, uh, that's exactly what we're talking about. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Glenn Gerstel. Do you hear that? That's the sound of the world changing, of networks connecting, enemies evolving. You can't slow it down. You can't avoid it. You can't stop it. But you can stay a step ahead. Every day, Raytheon engineers are innovating, modernizing, delivering trusted, innovative solutions that protect people, information, and infrastructure. So as our world changes, we can make it a safer place. So, Glenn, the technological revolution. You know, we thought it was rapid five years ago, and it seems to get more rapid every day. And that doesn't look like it's going to change. I know you've done a lot of thinking about the implications of that for privacy, the implications of that for the Fourth Amendment, the implications of that for what your agency does. Can you talk a little bit about that? And what does, in this age of the technological revolutions we're under, what does privacy even mean anymore? A good question. And it's too bad we can't do a 24-hour podcast because <laughs> we probably need that to, to address some of these issues. But let's take, uh, let's take a stab at some of them. So, you know, we are uh, in, either in the midst of or, or on the cusp of what some have referred to as the fourth industrial revolution, the, the, the digital revolution. It's a function of um, the, the technology we see, which is accelerating at an almost incredible incredible and unbelievable pace, a pace that we really don't fully understand. It's going to get exponentially more complicated and more expansive and more pervasive with the advent of 5G telecommunications, uh, cloud computing, uh, artificial intelligence, and so many other factors. So people are talking now about um, there being next year something like 20 billion devices connected to the internet, whether that's telephones or there already are some some your refrigerator, refrigerator your thermostat, your yes. toaster. I'm not sure why my, my toaster needs to be connected to the internet, <laughs> but it's coming. And, you know, when we say these numbers like 20 billion, they, they sort of don't, I mean, it's just such a big number. No one even knows what that means. But if you just sort of think about it in terms of just the growth rate, when we wake up tomorrow morning, there will be 5.5 million more devices connected to the internet than this morning. And that's going to happen the morning after that and the morning after that. So, you know, 5.5 million, well, it's still a pretty big number. It gives you a sense of, of just the sheer enormity of what we're talking about. So what are the implications of this? Uh, and as, as you said earlier, what, what, what does it really mean to have privacy in the digital age? And if you just think 10 years out from now, and this isn't really a pure NSA point. This is just sort of my personal musings. But if you think five and 10 years out, we're going to be in a world in which your precise location is going to be known 
everywhere to everybody, both the private sector and the government. So uh, uh, there'll be a, a camera on every street, which because of facial recognition and artificial intelligence will realize that it's Glenn Gerstel and Michael Morell. And that information is going to be available in some form, whether it's to the government or to the private sector. Um, because of your cell phone location, uh, not only will the Facebooks and whatever's of the world know where you are and where you're shopping, but so too will the, the department store will know that you've now entered the Macy's department store or whatever department, pick a name, whatever you wish. Perhaps your spouse will be able to instantly find out where you are and where you're going and then complicate that, for example, because what if some malevolent actor decides to fake that and while you truly are shopping at the drugstore, uh, someone intercepts uh, your signal and sends out a mischievous uh, signal and indicates that you're really in a bar somewhere, but you aren't, but your spouse gets that information or the government gets that information or whatever. So you can see there's lots and lots of potential for mischief. There's lots of potential for real benefit. But I think our society hasn't even now, let alone in the future, figured out what privacy really means. So what, what does it really mean? Uh, we haven't been faced with a technology like this that has become this ubiquitous this uh, impactful um, in, in uh, ever before in the history of the world. So when, when every time we've had technologies develop, whether it was the telephone, electricity, the automobile there, it took decades for the technology to become pervasive. And during that period of time, we were able to sort the rules of the road out. We were able to figure out how, what kind of safety we want in automobiles. Did we want seatbelts? Not. Uh, how, how are we going to regulate electricity? How are we, whatever. And so we, as a society, worked this out. We haven't worked that out yet in the, in the cyber world. Um, we are willing, seemingly, to tolerate some level of cyber insecurity. Um, there are lots of data breaches that go on, and yet our life continues, and we don't yet have laws dealing with them. And again, I'm not, this is my personal comments mm-hmm. here. Sure. But um, we just haven't come to terms yet with how we want to regulate cybersecurity, what the international norms are, what the domestic norms are, how we want to, the private sector to behave in this area versus the government. Uh, so lots and lots of questions that our society is going to have to sort out. So, Glenn, where where does this need to get worked out? How does what would what's the process that would make sense for starting to think these things through? Should it be in Congress? Should it be the courts? What's the role of the private sector? How do you think about how we need to work through this? All a complicated question. Um, so historically, in the United States at least, uh, the, the whole these, these concepts of privacy have been uh, rooted in the Fourth Amendment. So as a result, most of these issues have been defined through court cases and rather than legislation. Yes, we've had some legislation in some very specific areas. So, for example, there's federal legislation about how to treat your health and insurance records. There's some federal legislation about the privacy associated with uh, your credit reporting. But generally, we don't have broad uh, federal privacy legislation the way they do, for example, in Europe. Uh, One state, California, has just recently gone ahead with some privacy legislation, and some people are thinking that's a good idea for states to tackle it. Others say, no, 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 we can't have a situation where we have 50 states doing their each doing their own thing. We need federal laws in this area. So that debate has yet to yet to play out. Um, But uh, the courts, to go back to that for a second, I think this is just, again, my personal view, have not been a particularly good mechanism for articulating the rules in this area. And just to spend a second on it, you know, in areas that make intuitive sense, like uh, negligence, it's appropriate for the courts to just have a general rule about negligence. So we also to know what that means. If I, 
if I uh, leave my eight-year-old kid with a bunch of uh, matches and kerosene and the house burns down, everyone will say, well, you're negligent. We don't need to think a lot about that. It's just sort of intuitively obvious. But if I say to you, um, as a privacy matter, the government should be able to uh, track your whereabouts through your cell phone or the, um, the government shouldn't, should or should not be able to, to uh, find out who you've been calling, you know, the answer is maybe yes, maybe no. And in fact, the court cases are split on some of those questions. And so in, in the area where the courts enunciate rules about privacy, they're doing it with regard to the specific technology before them. And that really doesn't work in a situation in which the technology is so rapidly developing. Mm. Uh, so we may have court cases that talk about whether it's appropriate to use cell tower location today, but what does that mean 10 years from now when there aren't cell towers and it's all a 5G dispersed world and your whereabouts are known everywhere and you, what, what does that court case tell us about it? I think that is going to drive us to two things. One, I think it's going to drive us to more in industry regulation in this area. We're already seeing signs of that. Silicon Valley is talking about privacy rules and privacy legislation. People are talking about how the, in the Internet of Things, privacy needs to be baked into devices at the, at the beginning, at the manufacturing stage, which is a real challenge. Uh, and then I think it's also going to require some level of legislation. And again, I'm not here on behalf of NSA sure, to sure. articulate any particular sure. piece of legislation, but I think it's just inevitable that we're going to see significant legislative action in this area. And our, the question is, will our country be able to get ahead of the technological revolution or are we going to, um, for a number of years, be... Uh, dealing with the problems before we can come up with a societal solution. It's yet to be seen. Glenn, um, thank you so much for being with us. It's been great to have you on the show. This has just been terrific, and, and your show is just terrific as well. Thank you, Glenn. Thank you. That was Glenn Gerstel. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell, sponsored by Raytheon. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Claire Himes. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. Okay. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts.